All right, this morning we continue in Isaiah. And we left off in Isaiah chapter 40. And I guess the plan here this morning is to go ahead and finish up Isaiah 40. This is, uh, a, like I said, this is a big break in the, uh, uh, big turning point in the book of Isaiah. The first 36 chapters were prophecy. The next four are basically history. And then beginning in chapter 40, we pick up once again with prophecies. And remember, these prophecies are to the God's people that are in exile. They had been unfaithful to God. God had told Israel that if you are unfaithful to me, you will suffer and you will be scattered among the nations. And in 586, God completed the process of scattering them among the nations. And so this is where Isaiah is prophesying to those people. And these prophecies he makes beginning in Isaiah 40 is somewhere between 150 and 200 years into the future uh, from the time they were made. Because they were the uh, exiles were in Babylon that he's prophesying to, and they had no idea what's going to happen to them. They were basically the same position as the people in Egypt were centuries before. They had no army. Didn't look like they had any hope. And that's what we're going to look at today. These people that look like they had no hope. They just did not understand who God was. So we got through verse 8, I believe it was, last week. Uh, excuse me, verse 11. No, excuse me. Yeah, verse, verse 8. Okay, on the wrong page there. So let's look at verses 9 through 11 this morning. We will uh, we'll start over here with Travis this morning. If you just read for us, verses 9 through 11. Chapter 40, right? That's correct. Zion, herald of good news. Go on a high mountain. Jerusalem, herald of good news. Raise your voice loudly. Raise it, do not be afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. See, the Lord God comes with strength, and his power establishes his rule. His wages are with him, and his reward accompanies him. He protects his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them in the fold of his garment. He gently leads those that are nursing. Okay. Now, if we look back in Deuteronomy 40, Deuteronomy chapter 4 and Leviticus chapter 26, even though God threatens to send His people into exile, He also says that He will bring them out. Dana, if you will read for us, let's read one of those passages. Let's read Leviticus 26, 40 through 45. Now, you remember in Leviticus 26, last week we read that four times, I think it was, God said He would punish them sevenfold for their sins. Let's see what He says in Leviticus 26, verses 40 through 45. If they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their forefathers in their unfaithfulness which they committed against me, and also in their acting with hostility against me, 
I also was acting with hostility against them to bring them into the land of their enemies, or if their uncircumcised hearts become humble so that they then make amends for their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob, and I will remember also my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham as well. And I will remember the land, for the land will be abandoned by them and will wake up for its Sabbath while it is, it is made desolate without them. They, meanwhile, will be making amends for their iniquity because they rejected my ordinances and their soul abhorred my statutes. Yet in spite of this, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not reject them, nor will I so abhor them as to destroy them, breaking my covenant with them. For I am the Lord their God. But I will remember for them the covenant with their ancestors, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt, in the sight of the nations, that I might be their God. I am the Lord. Okay, so there's God's promise that He will restore them to the land. Now, how well they knew Leviticus, I don't know. Um, but they, even if they knew what God had told them in Leviticus, these seemed to be people that did not have a whole lot of faith. So, uh, I don't know how well they knew these. this passage. I don't know. Even if they knew it, I don't know how well they believed it. But the promise of God is there that He will restore them. And these passages would be for their comfort. Okay. Now, in your notes there, the people of Zion are then told to make a public declaration. Because in verse 9, it says, Get yourself up on the high mountain, O Zion, and bear the good news. Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Lift it up. Do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. For here is your God. So, this is just not some little feeble declaration. They are told to get up on a high mountain and shout with all their strength, Behold your God. We're supposed to make public declaration to to people to behold their God. I don't know anywhere in the Bible where it says we're supposed to share the gospel. I hate that phrase, share the gospel. We are to proclaim the gospel. We're not supposed to be scared of proclaiming it. We're not supposed to be shy in any way. We are to proclaim the gospel. Just as they are told to make a public declaration here. Now, what the first thing they said it says in verse ten is, "Behold, the Lord will come with might, uh, and His arm is ruling for Him. And behold, His reward is with Him, and His recompense is before Him." They need to tell the world that they're in trouble. You need to proclaim Yahweh as Judge of all the earth because you're in trouble. Uh, Jill, will you look up for us Romans one sixteen through eighteen? Now, um, this is this is comforting news for God's people. Verses nine through eleven is spoken to comfort God's people, and then, but for God's enemies, these words are to terrorize them. 
Okay, Jill. Romans 1, 16 to 19? 18. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Okay, after after uh, Paul uh, says he's not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first thing he says after that is the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress truth in unrighteousness. The gospel is comforting. We're not to be ashamed of it. We are to proclaim it. And we're to let people know God's wrath is coming from heaven. Just as these exiles were told to proclaim on top of a mountain, God is coming. And He is coming in judgment. And you people are in danger. If you oppose God, you're in danger. John 3.36 says, He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. So it's all throughout the Bible, including these exiles in Babylon and us here in the New Covenant Church, that we are to proclaim these, this news to people that if they, do, if they reject God's Son, God's wrath abides on them. It is the church's responsibility to let unbelievers know they are in danger. Jonathan Edwards was one that did that very well in his uh, sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Uh, I don't think anybody's ever explained it any better than that. If you haven't read or listened to that sermon, I would recommend you do it. Somebody said it's now been changed to the um, God in the hand of angry sinners. <laughs> but no, God is not in the hand of angry sinners. Sinners are in the hands of an angry God. And His wrath is revealed from heaven. Okay, yeah. Steve? In, yeah, and see, so many times, especially, I think it's very particular to the Armenian groups because uh, we had a volunteer in the jail. I shared this little brochure and it says... Uh, God's not mad at you. He loves you. And then just the past few months, uh, on my way to work, I'm seeing there's some people in their yards that put these signs out saying, you are precious, signed God. And it was like, well, we don't know that for sure for each individual because we need a message and you need to turn from these sins so you can be saved. Yeah. Yeah. I share your sentiments about the word share. Yeah. Nice time. <laughs> they suppress. They suppress the truth. Yeah. Yeah. You proclaim it to them instead of well, take it or leave it. You know, here's what I'm doing. I just cringe when I see that phrase, "share the gospel." We're not in any position to share the gospel. We're to proclaim Yahweh as judge of all the earth. Charles. Well, another word like that is offer. Yeah. People are not offered the gospel. They're commanded to believe it. Right. It's a command. It's not offered. 
and that's built right into the Armenian theology. Yeah. If I offer something, you, you can decide for yourself that you yeah. accept it or reject it. Free will. Why should you believe in Jesus Christ? First John three twenty three says because He commands you to. Uh, Steve? Yeah, and that's the position in uh, Gary North's book, uh, Unconditional Surrender. The point is, like Charles, you're being commanded to receive God's free. And if you reject it, then it's going to be death. Yeah. So we need to realize this. We're the ones that has the truth. We're the ones that has the gospel. We're the ones that are told that you are to let people know they're in trouble. I was just reading Psalm 7 yesterday, verse 11. God is a just judge, and God is angry with the wicked every day. Hmm. What scripture is that? Psalm 7, verse 11. Hmm. I think Psalm 11 says he will turn the wicked into hell. You don't have the newer translation. It says he's slightly upset with Oh, okay. I'm sorry. He's, well, he's, he's crying. He's upset. He's sad. <laughs> okay, so they're to lift up their voice with strength and say, Behold your God. And they're to proclaim these things in verse 10 that Yahweh is coming. The God of Scripture, the Christian God, He is coming. And verse 10, also that He will rule. And then in verse 11, it says He will gather His people like a shepherd tending his flock. Beautiful words in verse 11. Now, you know, these are people that are in exile that are being ridiculed by the Babylonians. The Babylonians don't realize that they're actually the ones in trouble. Alright. Uh, the people of Zion, okay, this is a the great God. This God that they are to proclaim. Behold your God. This is the great God that brought up Israel out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. He's the same God that sent Judah into captivity. So it won't be any harder for Him to gather Judah back he sent them into captivity, he can bring them back. So we're seeing, I told you at the beginning of chapter 40 that there's two questions. One, is God willing to bring Israel back? And number two, is He able? So we're seeing that He is both willing and able. So this is the God who is spirit this God is infinite, eternal, unchangeable in its being, wisdom, power, holiness, goodness, and truth. What word did I leave out there? Justice. Justice, okay. Yeah. Okay, yeah. So the Lord God omnipotent, it's the Lord God omnipotent that reigns. I want to read something from Derek Thomas here out of his commentary, God Delivers. Isaiah simply explained. Page 246 here. He says, The Bible never proves the existence, the existence of God. You can search from Genesis to Revelation, and what you find on every page is the assumption that God exists and that men know that He exists. When Paul preaches to the philosophers in Athens, he takes it for granted that they believe in God. 
God has, quote, God has undued all men with some sense of the Godhead with the result that a sense of deity is inscribed on every heart. Unquote. I believe that's Calvin that made that statement. What the Athenians needed to know was the nature of God. What Paul did on the Areopagus was to expound on the attributes of God and elaborating to turn upon God as creator, sustainer, ruler, father, and judge. That is exactly what Isaiah is going to do. Preach the gospel, uh, preach the gospel, excuse me, preach to the people of Judah about the character of God. He is going to describe God's attributes in detail. He is going to confront them with the only God there is and call upon them to make peace with Him. It is interesting to note that after emphasizing the severity of God in the opening chapters, He now concentrates on His goodness. And about the same as happens in Romans 11.22. Isaiah 40 is a chapter which describes both the power and the tenderness of God. The power of God should be a terror to unbelievers and of course, the tenderness of God is such a wonderful uh, teaching to God's people. So those that reject the Son, they face the terror of God, everlasting wrath. Um, they stand condemned already. That's how the NIV translates John 3.18. Those who reject the Son stand condemned already. They're not going to be condemned in the future. They stand judged already. People accuse Christians of us judging them. We're not judging them. They stand judged already. God has already made the judgment upon them for rejecting His Son. And if you want to look up a couple of places with Yahweh being a shepherd, look at Ezekiel 34, 12 through 24, and John 10, 11 through 16. So those are comforting passages for the Christian of God being a tender shepherd. And of course, Jesus Christ in John chapter 10 proclaims He is the shepherd of the sheep. Let's look at that just for a second. I want to point out something to you in that. John 10. Verse 11. It says here, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. If you want to get out your Greek New Testament, one of you guys, that is literally, I am the shepherd. Namely, the good one. Is how the Greek literally reads in that. Um which emphasizes the fact that He is namely the Good Shepherd. There may be all kinds of shepherds that have come before Him, but He is the good one, the fine one. And He's the one that lays down His life for the sheep. And then He goes on to describe how uh, watchmen a lot of times abandon the sheep. He does not. He lays His life down for the sheep because they belong to Him. The Father from eternity past, 
gave these people to Jesus for Jesus to take care of and to redeem by His own precious blood. That's what we have as Christians. And that should make us rejoice in the Lord every day. That we have a shepherd. We have the fine shepherd. We have the shepherd that has laid down his life for us. And all because of God's predestinating love, he's not our judge. He came the first time to save. He comes the second time to judge. But we'll all be openly acknowledged and acquitted on the day of judgment. Okay. One of our hymns today too. I'm sorry. What? The very subject is in one of our hymns. Okay. It's a really moving part. You know, why did he choose me and not others? Yeah. Makes it very special for us who've been chosen. Yeah. He chose us because he saw that we would believe, right? <laughs> okay. We won't get into that. <laughs> That's post destination in my book. In the church, they wouldn't have chuckled at that. <laughs> oh, yeah, he's got it all figured out. All right, any other comments on Jesus we being laugh. We, we, we would have problems. I think. <laughs> yeah. All right, the next section we'll move on to will be verses 12 through 31. And let's just to begin with. I'm going to read Psalm 115, verse 3, as kind of an introduction to this wonderful section. I couldn't decide whether to read Psalm 115, verse 3 for this, to introduce this section or watch chariots, bring chariots of fire and let's watch that. <laughs> but I decided we didn't have time to watch chariots of fire, so... We'll do this. Psalm 115, verse 3. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. So we have a sovereign God who has all authority in heaven and on earth. And He's entrusted that now to His Son. He has given His Son the authority to judge because He is Son of Man. But our, even in the Old Testament, our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. All authority in heaven and on earth. And now we're going to see what Isaiah has to say about this wonderful God. Um, another little introduction would be our catechism question. What is God? God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, unchangeable in His being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. But God is a most pure spirit and He is infinite. And He is eternal and He is unchangeable. What can be more comforting than to know that our God is that? Alright, to you know, remember the Hebrews in exile have two main concerns. Number one, is God willing to bring back the exiles to the land? And now what we're going to have addressed, is God able to bring the exiles to the land? So Isaiah is going to answer that. So 
the first 11 verses were to, basically to show that he was willing, and these verses are basically to show that he is able. All right. Now, Ortland says in his commentary, and this I thought was good, we need more than seeing God through our own eyes. Okay? He says Isaiah shows us God through God's eyes. If we see God through our own eyes, we diminish Him without meaning to or even realizing it. But if we see God through God's eyes, it changes how we see everything else. Isaiah understands that. Isaiah understands that. And in this passage, he shows us the whole universe through God's eyes. Okay. All right. Let's see. Mike, I believe it's your time to read. Let's read verses 12 through 17. Okay. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens by the span and calculated the dust of the earth by the measure? and weighed the mountains in a balance, and the hills in a pair of scales. Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord, or as his counselor has informed him? With whom did he consult, and who gave him understanding, and who taught him in the path of justice, and taught him knowledge, and informed him of the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop in the, from a bucket, and are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Behold, he lifts up the islands like fine dust. Even Lebanon is not enough to burn, nor its beast enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. All right, about five or six times in the first few verses, he says, who has done this and who has done that? What's the answer? None. Nobody. Okay. To your notes here. Um, the greatness of the Lord's might is shown in verses 12 through 17. He is shown to be Lord over all creation. Verse 12. The Lord over all creation. He's marked off the heavens. He's measured the waters. He's calculated the dust of the earth. He's weighed the mountains. Things of that sort. So he is Lord over all creation. And also, he is in need of no help. He has perfect wisdom. So, who has directed the Spirit of the Lord or been his counselor? Nobody has ever done that. The Lord doesn't have to take counsel with anyone, the Lord has perfect knowledge. Um, and then He is Lord over all the nations, verses 15 through 17. The nations are like a drop of a bucket in a bucket to Him. So in verse 12, we see the hearer is told to look at the great ocean, the wonderful heavens, the majestic mountains, even the greatness of the nations of the earth. Look at all these great things. And realize this, that your God is creator and sustainer of all these things. He's Lord over all creation. Is He not able to restore you to the land? Why do you doubt what He can do? He can restore you however, whenever, however and whenever He pleases. The nations that hold you, the nation that holds you in captivity, 
is worthless. He's less. This Babylon is less than nothing. He's like fine. It's like fine dust on the scale. In the verses 13 and 14, he shows the people he needs no counsel. He is all-knowing. He consults with no one. God's knowledge is exhaustive of past, present, and future. You know, some people say God can do everything. Can God learn? No, God cannot learn, can He? That's one thing that God cannot do. If you know everything exhaustively, you cannot learn. Then in verses 15 to 17, he assures his people he's Lord of all the nations. Assyria and Babylon are like a drop in the bucket. They're like small dust on the scales. They're nothing. They're counted by him as less than nothing. And they are worthless. Remember Egypt. Remember Egypt. They had they were in the same situation. Nobody they had no hope. The mightiest nation on earth with a mighty army held Israel in captivity who had no army. Okay. Bud This is yeah when I read through this to the end of the chapter, this is just so similar to God's response to Job. And it even starts out with a measuring uh, verses. When I look back at it, I look back and it's Job 38 and 39. Yeah. And it's good point. It's not word for word, but it's all the same mm. words, really. Same thoughts. Yeah. yeah. Okay, good point. But Psalm 33, verses 11 through 17. Um, <coughs> Michelle, Psalm 147, 10 through 11. Charles, are you going to remain in here long enough to do this one? I will. Okay. All right. uh, Psalm 103, verses 17 through 18. All right, bud, whenever you find that. What is that at 33? 11 through 17. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of His heart to all generations. Blessed is a nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom He has chosen as His heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where He sits in throne, he, too, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their needs. The king is not saved by its great army. A warrior is not delivered by its great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation. And by its great might, it cannot rescue. Alright, this these verses start out by showing the absolute sovereignty over of God over, over the nations. And the fact that He is involved in the affairs of men. He looks down from heaven. He sees all the sons of men. He looks out. even fashions their hearts. And then, in verse 16, a king is not saved by a mighty army. A warrior is not delivered by great strength. A horse is a false hope for victory. Now these are the things that the children of Israel did not need to be worried about. That they did not have an army. 
God says, that doesn't make any difference to me. Whether you have an army or not, that does not make any difference to me. I know you don't have an army. Psalm 20, verse 7 tells us that... Um, hold on a second. Let me get this page turned. Uh, it says... Some boast in chariots and some in horses, but we will boast in the name of the Lord our God. All right, Psalm 147, verses 10 through 11. Michelle? He does not delight in the strength of the horse. He takes no pleasure in the legs of the man. The Lord takes pleasure in those who fear Him and those who hope in His mercy. Now, I'm so thankful for the military. I'm so thankful for all of those people that have died for our freedom, which the government chips away at little by little. But if I read the Bible correctly, it's, it's, it's nice to have a good military, but that's not what we put our trust in. Ultimately, our trust has to be in God, as has been proven over and over in the Bible. Um, the Lord delights in His people being righteous. That's what makes us strong. Right makes might. Might doesn't make right. Right makes might. All right, Psalm 103, verses 17 through 18. But the loving kindness of Yahweh is from everlasting to everlasting of those who fear or revere Him, and His righteousness to children's children, to those who keep His covenant and remember His precepts to do them. Okay. God's loving kindness is on from everlasting to last, everlasting on those who fear Him and who keep His covenant and remember His commandments to do them. <clears throat> so, Israel, you have no army, but that is no obstacle to God. Your faith is to be in the Lord. And even if you did have an army, that's great, but don't put your faith in them. We put our faith in God. All right, verse 17, I guess, is going to be about it for us today. It is uh, Well, let's see. We have a little bit more in the notes. Uh, so, he has all power in your notes, which means he's omnipotent. And he has all knowledge, which means he is omniscient and all wisdom. He's omnipotent, omnis omniscient, and he has all wisdom. Isaiah next will bring up worthless idols, which is where we will be picking up next week with the worthless idols. Anybody have any comments on what we've covered today? What, what was that song that Bud read? What was that reference? 33. 33? It's not 33, 17. 11. 11 through 17. 33 of 11 through 17. <coughs>
can show something about Voyager came before me again recently. And the photographs that they're sending back, they're now in interstellar space. And we have no comprehension of what's out there. It's just a drop of a drop in a bucket. <laughs> <laughs> it's over over a hundred billion galaxies, and each galaxy has a hundred billion stars. Yeah, and that's unbelieving scientists that are coming up with those numbers. I tell you, when I was studying to get my personal trainer certification, uh, I was studying kinetic anatomy, uh, how complex the human body is, and I was thinking. You know, well, I know the answer to it, but rhetorically, how can anybody read this and not believe in Almighty God that created, created showing His wisdom, showing His wisdom and how the human body functions? It takes an awful lot of time for it to happen by chance, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, a lot of time. if anybody reads reads how complex, as Kim was saying, the kinetic anatomy is I just don't see how anybody could stay with evolution and then everybody's alike too I mean if you evolve you'd think there'd be a little bit of differences in the way everybody functions but all our bodies function the same way when they're functioning right okay uh, Mike will you close us in prayer please our father in heaven we 